May I say that it's always a great joy to be permitted to come to be with this fine congregation. All the AP uh, family is very grateful for this church and just appreciate you so much. We love your preacher, we love your elders, love all of you. So it is a delight to be here. Very grateful for not only the tremendous uh, way in which uh, Brother McKee led singing today, but also the selection of hymns, since nearly all of them pertain exactly to what we're talking about. And really, we could go home now because those songs said everything that I plan on saying. Notice they were based on Psalm 19, heavens declare the glory of God. Romans chapter 1, we can know there's a God and know something about him by the things that are made. What about Acts chapter 14 where Paul and Silas were in the pagan Greek city of Lystra? And he affirmed to that audience, God has not left himself without witness. And then he listed some of the features of the created order that point to the one true God. So in our last hour together, we were answering this question, can we know that God exists? And certainly the answer to that is a bold yes. Christians should never respond half-heartedly and say, well, you know, I think so. I, I feel like that's the case. I've come to believe that that's true. But if you're pressing me to say, can I prove it to you? No, I can't do that. And I suggest to you, that's not the Bible approach. You cannot have faith in God unless you first know that he exists any more than you can have faith in your physical father if you do not know that he exists, whether there even is such a being. Faith depends on knowledge. Faith comes by the hearing of the word of God. So you've got to have knowledge of God before you can then decide to trust and to go with that, the essence of faith. Well, has God left sufficient information for us to know whether he exists, whether or not his word has been expressed to us? And, of course, the answer to that is yes. As you know, Apologetics Press over 30 years has been uh, pouring over materials that can be made available to help people to come to that conclusion. You know, the number one alternative, I suppose, in our culture to God and creation is evolution. That's going to be discussed by other AP personnel beginning tonight, a working definition, the belief that all life on earth, including humans, arose from lower forms of life through naturalistic processes, notice, as opposed to supernatural, that is God, over millions of years. Does the Bible accommodate such a view of origins? Does the Bible allow for millions of years for creation? It's easy for us to feel pressure from a secular society and to compromise on what the Bible clearly teaches on these matters. Consequently, it's, it's easy for some to have argued. Some of our university professors have said, you know, the creation account is, is a hymn, a theological hymn. It's mythic. It's figurative. It's not intended to convey a literal set of circumstances where God actually created everything in what we would call six days. But instead, he incorporated evolution. Well, it's interesting. The more you study evolution scientifically, the more you learn that can't happen. It's scientifically, genetically, and every other way you want to look at it, impossible. Even if they had the millions and billions of years, that cannot occur. Be sure and be here tonight at 6 for good information on that subject. 5, sorry. 5 p.m. this afternoon. Thank you, Doug.
Neither the Bible nor true science provide any proof for evolution. So, the days that you read about in the Bible depict for us how it actually occurred, which clearly represents literal 24-hour days, demonstrating also that the Bible is true, that true science is in harmony with that, and there is a God behind it all. And I suggested to you in our last hour that the mere fact that when you look at the created order, when you see different species of plants and animals that depend upon each other for survival, that have to be in existence together, fully functional, well, that's proof they had to have been designed, created, set up that way. There's no time for millions and billions of years. They would have, in fact, gone out of existence if they were not created in close proximity to each other. And we were talking about symbiosis then, how these two species depend upon each other for survival, each gaining benefits from the other. This alone proves there's a God, the Genesis account is literal and accurate, and that uh, creation is the only approach that we can take. We see God by the amazing features of his created world. So, if God created birds on day five and created reptiles one day later, if you find birds and reptiles that need each other to survive, then those days are not extended periods of time. They have to be regular days. And that's exactly what we find. Take, for example, the Nile croc. This is a brute. He is a mean dude. They can weigh over 1,600 pounds, reach 20 feet in length, and they will eat anything. Mainly fish, but they, they'll eat anything. Birds, uh, they ha- are ambush hunters, so they, they'll go after anything that gets close enough to the water for them to grab. In fact, uh, they wait for fish or land animals to come close. They rush out and attack, and there, there are some 200 people every year that die in the jaws of, uh, of these Nile crocs, a vicious creature. Well, now let me show you another creature that's interesting in God's creation, the Egyptian plover bird. It's an amazing little bird. I ran across uh, a book written in the late 50s by a World War I British intelligence officer, kind of an armchair ornithologist, did study of a variety of birds, And he describes in that book how he went to Egypt, south of Khartoum, and was doing his research. And there he watched a large crocodile emerging from the river to a sandbank, flop down on its belly, close its eyes, and open its mouth. Three of these Egyptian plover birds, who had been feeding nearby, immediately flew over, one perching on the outer gums, pecking at the teeth, the other two remaining on the ground and inspecting the mouth occasionally reaching up and pecking the teeth. He said, I couldn't say what was extracted by the birds, but the whole episode looked as though the crocodile expected and invited the birds. That's how it appeared to him. The birds were quite at home inspecting the inside of the mouth of the crocodile. Well, what's been discovered is that these birds are cleaning parasites, leeches, bits of food from the crocodile's mouth. You know, there is no dentist on the planet that has a clientele of crocodiles. So it is obvious that God took that matter under his own control. Here is an old copy of the Quarterly Journal of Ornithology. And this too has 
indications of this phenomenon that exists with regard to what the locals, they said in the Nile Valley, called the crocodile bird. And how these uh, birds would appear and literally go inside of the crocodile's mouth and even stay inside when the crocodile closed his mouth for a period and then open his mouth, the bird would come out and go over to the riverbank and the fellow said, I couldn't tell exactly what it was doing, but it was either dispensing what he had removed from the crocodile or it was taking in water to go back. Remember how the dentist says rinse? It may well have been that. They're not, they're not sure about that. But um, all of this phenomenon is symbiotic. You know, the, the plover bird is getting a meal. The croc is getting a valuable teeth cleaning. Both are benefiting. The days of Genesis 1 could not have been long eons of time. This relationship, this complexity, this interweaving of God's created order is proof of a mind that's higher than our mind, that's beyond our mind, that could orchestrate these things in the created order. Proof of God. Such sophisticated relationships among diverse creatures. You know, crocodiles eat birds. But they don't eat that bird. They'll eat anything else. But they let that bird go inside the mouth. Can you imagine the temptation of that croc to say, well, I, I, am, I do need a snack this morning. There's something going on beyond the appearance that points to a master designer and creator. Such an arrangement could not have evolved. There was not a crocodile convention at some point in history where the crocs got together and said, you know, we've we got more of our buddies dying from dental disease. So let's, let's make one exception in, as to what we eat. I mentioned that uh, over in Selma this last week, and a fellow raised his hand and said, well, you know, even if those crocs did meet with that convention, I doubt they could have convinced those birds to go along with it. I think he was right about that. Listen, Job Job gives us the answer. Ask the birds, the beasts. They'll tell you, the birds of the air. They'll tell you. Who among all these does not know that the hand of the Lord has done this? In whose hand is the life of every living thing and the breath of all mankind. Notice that plants are created on day three. Insects, not till day six. And yet there are some unbelievable interrelationships designed by God. Take, for example, the fact that these aphids, which are very harmful to plants, can be. Farmers don't like them. They suck sap from the, the plants. They have special mouth parts that are designed to pierce the plants and suck the juice. There's proof right there. You can spend your life studying just that phenomenon. But what these uh, aphids do as they gather on these plants is these ants come along and literally begin to farm these ants. It's like an, or these aphids, it's like an aphid farm. And they milk them by stroking them with their antennae, which then causes the aphid to secrete honeydew, a little ball of uh, nutrient-rich liquid, which the ants then consume. It's part of their diet, a major part of their diet. They don't harm the aphids. It's not in their best interest to do so. Uh, They're simply using them. And it's amazing that this photography is able to identify, and you can see with your own eyes, these bits of dew that are released and then taken in by the ant. 
using his antenna to stroke them and to cause the release of that dew. This relationship could not have evolved. It had to have been designed this way. So the ants get their food from these aphids by carefully tending them, managing them, without harming them. But that raises another question. What is the benefit to the aphids? What are they getting out of this arrangement, if anything? They get protection. Because there are predators, invaders, like the ladybug, that go after aphids. And they have some success, but not near the success they would have if it weren't for the ants stepping in and providing protection. What a relationship. The ants immediately attack predators. The predators finally say, enough of this, and they flee. Well, that's fairly complicated right there, but it gets even more complicated. The piercing capability of the aphid, which removes the sap, entails the rich carbohydrates that come from the plant, but the plant is not able to provide amino acids. The aphid cannot synthesize uh, the amino acids, and so all they can do is deal with the fluid that they extract. The amino acids, therefore, have to be synthesized. Well, how that, how's that to be done? The ants can't do that either living inside of the aphids in a certain part of their body, a very specific part of their body, special cells called bacteriocytes. There is a living organism that lives there. The bacteria needs the aphid to survive. The aphid needs the bacteria to synthesize the amino acids. The ant Now look at this, this intricacy. And, and again, uh, people that study this their entire life, they've yet to figure out a lot of things that are going on. But they've learned this much. The ants depend on the aphid for food. The aphid depends on the ant for protection. The aphid depends upon internal bacteria for their amino acids. The aphid provides the bacteria with energy, carbon, and shelter living inside of those specialized cells within the aphid. This complexity is beyond imagination. Symbiosis within symbiosis. That's astounding. That, that requires a mind. But the aphid also sustains a relationship with another insect, another creature, the black wasp. I probably should put a little bit of a disclaimer here. If you're squeamish, you might want to close your eyes here in just a minute. Plants besieged by aphids send up a chemical mist that signals black wasps to come forward. How about that? Plants sending out signals. The wasps do not kill the aphids when they arrive on the scene. It is to their advantage to keep them alive. The first thing they do with clinical precision is inject a single egg into each aphid's body. Each wasp can inject up to 200 eggs into 200 aphids. This does not kill the aphid. 
Instead, the aphid's body becomes an incubator. This is how the black wasp reproduces itself. It uses the body of the aphid to produce offspring. This little uh, larva begins to grow, the black wasp within the aphid, and begins to literally consume the aphid alive from the inside out. This is one of the ways in which God controls the aphid population. When that little black wasp is ready to emerge, he comes forth, and the process commences all over again. So you've got ants, you've got aphids, you've got the bacteriocytes, and you have these black wasps. All interacting with each other, providing mutual benefits and perpetuating life. That could not have evolved. And here's the, kind of, here's the kind of thing that evolutionists will tell our children in class. Of course, they don't want to go into any of these details, but when they do, they say, oh, yes, and notice how evolution has produced this and that. They say that. Over a period of millions of years, the two organisms co-evolved a mutual dependency. Well, that, that sounds pretty educated. It must be true, I guess. You know, most kids, when they see that, they're going to, okay, and go on with their life. And then they grow to adulthood, and they've had dissonance, depending upon how strong their rearing was with Christian values. There's a dissonance, because they know those don't fit together. And the statistics show that the vast majority of the time that the kids fade away from their religion. And the parents are scratching their head. We brought them to church. What's going on here that they would reject our value system? Well, they've been fed, if they're in public school, years of this kind of propaganda. And they're they're not equipped to deal with it in most cases. Such a statement is nonsensical. It's a bunch of gobbledygook. That doesn't mean anything. Look at it closely. That's That's a strong statement that something happened with no proof whatsoever. And any attempt to actually put into words some kind of explanation immediately, it's apparent that that's silly. That would not have happened. It could not have happened. These creatures needed each other from the beginning. They had to have been designed to function the way they do intact. Or they would not have existed at all. How did the ant or the wasp gain nourishment before becoming dependent? Where did the first wasp come from, if not from inside the body of the aphid. Now let me show you another example very quickly and then our time will be gone. This is an amazing ant that lives deep in the rainforest of Brazil. It's called the leafcutter ant because it goes out from the ant hill and cuts leaves, chops them off, chews them off without consuming anything because these, uh, these leaves are toxic to the ant, so they don't swallow. <laughs> these forager ants cut the leaves from the plant and then carry the leaves back to the nest, take them down inside the nest and turn them over to another set of ants whose assigned responsibility is to chew them up, again, without swallowing, it's toxic, and turn it into a pulpy mulch. Those ants then feed that mulch to another organism 
that the ants cultivate. It is, in fact, a fungus that breaks down the toxins in the leaves and swells with proteins and sugars. The ants can eat that. It's been detoxed so they can consume that. So they've got to bring these leaves, process them, turn them over to the uh, fungus, which then converts the leaves into edible material. The ants need the fungus for food and will die without the fungus. The fungus cannot live without the ants because they depend upon the ant to bring the leaves in and make them available to them. Once again, mutual dependency. They could not have evolved. The fungus grows, by the way, only in the underground chambers of the leafcutter ant's nest. Explain that. Leafcutter ants are sensitive enough that if they bring a leaf in that the fungi don't like, they somehow communicate, and the leafcutter ant stops bringing in that kind of leaf because it can be harmful to the fungus. They think there's a chemical signal that's going on. The fungus garden that the ants cultivate now gets deeper. This, the, you just keep peeling off layers, and you go deeper. Peeling off layers, you go deeper. God's incredible designs. There is a, a mold, an aggressive mold, that threatens the life of the fungus. So that mold has to be kept in check. If, um, if it's not, it will devastate the fungus garden. It'll kill all the fungus. The ants are the ones that keep the mold in check. How do they do that? Entomologists have discovered that the ants, especially the ones that are down there tending the fungus, have a white, waxy coating on their body. Inexplicable. But because of our ability now to look at things microscopically, they've examined it, and under electron microscope, it turns out to be a tangled mat of bacteria, living organisms. The same types of bacteria that produce half the antibiotics that humans have learned to use. So the ants are controlling the mold by using antibiotics. That's astounding. Absolutely astounding. The ants are wearing portable antimicrobials. They wear it. Humans have been using antibiotics for how long? About a half century. Therefore, for over 5,000 years, humans have not had access to such medical capability. But God's creatures did. I argue from the very beginning. Ants have been using antibiotics for millennia. Absolutely astounding. Proverbs 6. Go to the ant. Consider her ways. See, Solomon's telling us to do that. Have we done it? Go check out the ant. Has no captain, overseer, ruler. Provides her supplies in the summer. Gathers her food in the harvest. How about Psalm 104? O Lord, how manifold are your works. In wisdom have you made them all. The earth is loaded. The earth's loaded with your creatures. Your creatures, not evolution, not mindless 
mechanistic forces. The Creator produced all of these creatures. They are proof of His existence. The smaller and deeper we go in examining God's creation, the more complex, sophisticated, and astounding the discoveries. One would have to be prejudiced and deliberately determined to deny God, to brush aside the overwhelming evidence of Him and His creation. No wonder twice the psalmist said, if you say there's no God, you are operating out of a foolish mindset. That is a morally deficient mental posture to see this evidence and say there is no God. There's some ulterior motive or motives driving such a person besides, in addition to, the plain evidence. Because the evidence is decisive. Asking us to believe that all of this came about by sheer mechanistic forces, chance circumstances over millions of years. It's like asking us to believe that if we took a stick of dynamite and threw it into a print shop and waited for the explosion, maybe do this multiple times, maybe do it your entire life once a day, that the, once the debris settled from the explosion, the, the result would be a you know, fifth edition Webster's Dictionary. Who believes that that could happen? Well, you know, given enough time, given the right temperature, that's ridiculous. Complexity and design and purpose and intelligence do not come out of mindless chaos. It requires a mind. Proverbs 26 offers the only logical explanation. There's a great God who formed everything. That's the only rational and it's the only scientific explanation. The earth is full of God's possessions. What about Job 37? Stand still and consider the wondrous works of God. Notice that whenever Paul said, you can know there's a God by the things that have been made, he concludes that little observation by saying, if therefore you do not acknowledge the one true God, when you stand before him in eternity, you will be without excuse. There will be no sufficient excuses to cause a person to be acceptable to God when they've rejected his presence. Creation declares the reality of the creator. May God help each one of us to humbly bow before him by living the Christian life every day. You're aware of the fact that our website's loaded with this kind of material to help you and your children ward off all of these forces of unbelief that have swept over the moral and spiritual landscape of our nation. Well, I don't know about you, but when I go back and look at things like this and study God's created order, I'm just thrilled. I'm just ecstatic. Why would anybody not want to organize their life to pursue this perspective? And as we mentioned, I believe, in the last hour, well, because there are a lot of things that appeal to our flesh. Going all the way back to the garden. The appearance of that fruit. You know, she looked at that and it it appealed to the lust of the flesh. That is, she could just almost taste it. And then you tack onto that that it would make her somebody. That was just overwhelming satanic pressure to succumb. And she succumbed. And all of us have too. But God's word, 
manifested both through scripture and through natural revelation are sufficient to bolster our spirits, to cinch our determination, to give us the sense of certainty and definitiveness that we need to withstand all of these allurements that Satan is throwing at us. More than ever before, I would argue, in our culture, there are more anti-Christian, anti-God allurements in our country. Our children are being bombarded with it. But God's given us the means by which to withstand and to stay faithful to him. And he requires that of us. So we can do it. We can do it. Maybe you're not a New Testament Christian. You've never obeyed the gospel the way the New Testament teaches. Satan's confused that landscape as well, has he not? But the New Testament is clear that people who heard the word of God, examined the gospel, the good news, made the decision either to believe it or not to believe it. Those who believed it had an opportunity then to change their thinking, to confess Christ with their mouth, and then to be immersed in water in order to have their sins washed away by the blood of Christ. That in and of itself is an amazing scheme of redemption, unparalleled in the annals of human thought. God's ways are always superior to man's. As Christians, we're living in the midst of a society that is giving us a lot of options that, that will dull our spiritual appetites. Is that happening to you? You know, here you have this tremendous VBS orchestrated by this congregation. I think, John, you mainly uh, organized a lot of this. But, wow, what a, what a tremendous spiritual feast and opportunity to bolster yourself and strengthen your godly determination and your kids. Now, tell me what, what's going on in your life over the next three or four days that merits setting that aside to give attention to that. If Christ comes tonight or tomorrow night, well, what would you say to him? You know, what matters to you? What, what's important in your life? Are we, are we even conveying to our children that God means everything to us? He is number one in our lives. We as Christians have got to determine that we're going to be faithful, and that means if we've, if we've manifested spiritual weakness, we ought to correct it. If it needs to be done in front of the church, that's where it ought to be done. We ought to apologize to our children if we've done it. Help them to see we're, we're human, we make mistakes, but we, we can see the spiritual framework that God's given us that he demands that we follow so that we can be happy in this life and anticipate eternity, eternity with him. If you need to come this morning, we urge you to do it as we stand and sing together.